Who is Jesus? If you went out into the community and asked that question, I would suspect that for many people, you'd just get a blank stare. If you gave them a hint and mentioned Christmas and Easter, that might enliven them to a few ideas, but I suggest many would still be in the dark. Ask people about the church, however, and I expect the answers would be much more forthcoming. They could probably tell you about George Pell, the church is wanting a religious freedom bill. They may remember the regular stories in the media about Scott Morrison's faith. The church is out there in the social fabric of our society, isn't it? And so uh, people can talk about some of those issues that they hear about. But with Jesus, it's a little more difficult. He's a historical figure, an object of faith. And so you have to research a few facts and use your mind and your heart to come to a view about Jesus. It takes a little bit more energy, a bit more work, and hence the difficulty of witnessing to Jesus today. So who is Jesus and how do we communicate him today? That's the question that comes to my mind as I look at John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. Because here we see the stories of a number of people who had to carefully consider Jesus and decide, do I know enough? Who is he? Do I know enough to follow him? And then uh, decide that they were going to follow him and not only follow him, but point others to follow him as well. So today we're beginning a new series in John's Gospel, a series through Lent, where we're looking over uh, six weeks at a number of people in John's Gospel who have to consider who Jesus is and whether they want to follow. And so next week, we'll just, just give you a brief summary of what's coming. Next week, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, the blind man that Jesus healed in John chapter 9, and Lazarus who was raised from the dead in chapter 11, and then the crowd on Palm Sunday in chapter 12. Today, however, we're looking at the call of five disciples and um, how they came to understand who Jesus was. Firstly, the two disciples that uh, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. And he did it with the words, here is the Lamb of God. If you look there in verse 36, if you have John 1 open in front of you, you'd find it very handy, page 1063. And uh, two of John's disciples uh, are with John and he sees Jesus and he says, go follow him. And they do. Uh, And they're told to follow the Lamb of God. They also know Jesus as Rabbi. Uh, That's the title they use to address Jesus there in verse 38. One of those disciples is Andrew. So he goes to fetch his brother Simon Peter. And his testimony to Simon is, we found the Messiah. Verse 41, we're not sure what Philip knew about Jesus, but he follows him and then goes to find Nathanael and tells him that he is the one Moses wrote about, the one whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, in verse 45. And then finally, Nathanael's testimony in verse 49, where he declares Jesus is rabbi, son of God, king of Israel. So there's a rich tapestry of titles here given to Jesus uh, at the beginning of John's Gospel. But what does it mean to call Jesus the Lamb of God, Rabbi, 
Messiah, the one Moses and the prophets wrote about, the Son of God, the King of Israel. Well, first eat Lamb of God in verse 29. It's probably pointing to Jesus' sacrificial death. You see, the lamb was offered for sacrifice in the Mosaic law. You can read all about that in Leviticus. And if you do read Leviticus, I suggest you do it with a good commentary to help you understand all of those, uh, the, the work of the tabernacle and what it meant for the Israelites to bring a sacrifice to find atonement for sin. Uh, a very important book for us to understand the cross. But uh, it's talking about the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, a sacrificial lamb. There's also the lamb used in the Passover. You might remember the story of the Israelites the night before they left Egypt. They had to slaughter the lamb. They had to put the blood on the doorpost so that the angel of death would pass over their houses. And then they had to eat the lamb in the Passover meal. So maybe there's this sense of the lamb. Or another possibility is the apocalyptic lamb that we find in the book of Revelation. John the Baptist was an apocalyptic preacher who believed the end of the world was near and then therefore people had to repent. And he pointed to people, sorry, he pointed to Jesus as the Messiah who would bring the end. And so maybe John has in mind the apocalyptic lamb as well, the lamb of God. That idea operates at a number of levels. Uh, But they all point to the fact that here is one who deserves great respect, one who's prepared to offer his life as a sacrifice to save others, an apocalyptic lamb who will be uh, the one who will defeat, finally, the forces of evil. Jesus is indeed the one. But next title given to him is Rabbi there in verse 38, which John clearly explains to his Gentile readers means teacher. This is probably the easiest term for us to grasp because we all know what a teacher is, don't we? But I want to suggest that the way Jesus operates as teacher is probably very different to the way we think uh, in our educational system. Jesus isn't interested in just teaching a body of knowledge for which you sit for an exam at the end. Uh, And it's not like you get an exam at the end of life and... um, You know, you have to recite the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, um, you know, in order to pass the test and get through. No, Jesus operates very differently. His teaching is about life. Life that is salvation. It's about a salvation for this life and the next. And so he uses parables. He uses dogmatic teaching. He takes people's pastoral needs where they are and he gives them spiritual meaning. He uses sermons. He uses everyday incidences in people's lives. Jesus' teaching is about having a relationship with God that works itself out in every aspect of life. So a rabbi back in those days would have had a number of disciples who follow him and who want to learn more about God. And Jesus was the rabbi par excellence. He attracted bigger crowds and had more influence than any rabbi in his day or since. And you only have to look at his teaching to understand why. Most people can, I think, accept Jesus at least as a rabbi, as teacher. But Andrew's testimony goes further. Andrew comes to Simon Peter and says, We found Jesus who is the Messiah, that is the Christ, there in verse 41. 
And there's so much to that title, and the titles that follow it really fill it out somewhat. But what did uh, Andrew mean? What was in his mind as he introduced his brother to the Messiah? Well, the popular idea of the day was that the Messiah would be a leader who would come and deliver the nation from foreign occupation and re-establish the glory of Israel, re-establish God's people living under the Mosaic law, living in God's kingdom. So Andrew probably saw Jesus as a leader in that sort of light. Jesus was Messiah. Philip's testimony about Jesus takes that idea of Messiah further because he says he's the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. That's in verse 45. So this last little bit, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, that was just the common way people were identified back in those days. You were identified by the place where you lived and the family that you belonged to. And so uh, this simply points to Jesus' humanity. Jesus is a human being like you and me uh, with a particular family living in a particular place. He lived in Nazareth. His father was Joseph. When Philip says he is the one Moses wrote about and also the prophets, he can't help but be pointing to Jesus as Messiah. Because the Jewish scriptures consistently pointed to a deliverer who God would send to save his people. It would be interesting to know which scriptures Philip had in mind as he talked about the one who Moses and the prophets wrote about. You might recall from two weeks ago when we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' words, Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come not to abolish them but to fulfill them. So I think Philip was on the right track when he says, this is the one Moses and the prophets spoke about. And then we have Nathaniel's testimony to Jesus. What does he say about Jesus? He says he's rabbi, which we've already covered, and then son of God, king of Israel. What do you think about when you think of son of God? Probably think about the Trinity. That's how we think about it, isn't it? Second person of the Trinity. But I doubt Nathaniel was thinking that way because that sort of thinking came many centuries later. The term son of God in those days was again a reference to Messiah. The kings of Israel were sometimes referred to as sons of God and the Messiah was seen as the perfect king who in the end would be the only one who could truly claim to be the son of God. Nathaniel in fact goes on to say there that you are the king of Israel. And so he's immediately after saying son of God, he's thinking king of Israel. And that's probably what he has in mind as he uses these terms. Both of them, both these phrases, son of God, king of Israel, are further ways of declaring Jesus is the Messiah. And then the final title that's used here is one that Jesus uses himself, son of man, verse 51. And this was his favourite title for himself And the one I think he used the most because of its ambiguity. (laughs) It could have been referring to his humanity, but if you uh, understood your Jewish scriptures in the book of Daniel, it's the Son of Man who's the Messiah figure coming from heaven. So all of these titles, I think, in one way or the other, in the end are pointing to Jesus as Messiah. He is Lamb of God, the one Moses and the prophets wrote about. 
He's son of God. He's son of man, king of Israel. All of these titles have messianic overtones. And they would have been very meaningful for Jewish people in the first century. But for people who have no biblical background, probably not a lot of meaning. What do people today think about Jesus? Well, many still have a positive view. There are people out there who would describe themselves as not being very religious but would still have a positive view of Jesus. They might say things like uh, he's a model of love or he's a rebel against organised religion or a defender of the powerless, he's an inspiring leader. Each of these opinions is quite flattering but is it enough? These comments don't go anywhere near as far as the titles that we hear here in John chapter 1. And the problem is that flattering misconceptions can actually be a convenient way of protecting yourself from the full implications of who Jesus really is. They can allow you to keep a distance from Christ. Uh, I'm not going to offend him or his people or his cause, but it's a way of saying, yeah, he's a good guy, but keeping him at a distance. I think John Dixon has a lovely little illustration here. He says it's the religious equivalent of the romantic, I just want to be friends. <laughs> and we all know what that means, don't we? Just keep the distance. Um, I don't want to get too close. So by calling Jesus a great teacher and nothing more, people are just relegating Jesus to this wise sage who has some do's and don'ts for finding a happy life. Or saying he's a rebel against organised religion is an excuse just to not go to church and not hear more about him. Uh, and so people don't just reject Jesus outright, but let's keep him at a distance. We just want to be friends. That's no further. That's it. But you see, if Jesus really is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, if he really is the one Moses and the prophets wrote about, if he really is son of man, son of God, king of Israel, Messiah, then just calling him a great teacher or a model of love is hardly adequate, hardly adequate. It's a bit like being rescued from drowning and you're out there in the rough sea and the lifesaver drags you in up onto the beach and you say, you're a good swimmer, aren't you? <laughs> now that's a nice compliment but it's hardly adequate, is it? Wouldn't you want to throw your arms around him, give him a big hug and say, you saved me, thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, unfortunately, some people just like to give Christ the nice compliments and go no further. Uh, they don't really want to seriously engage with who he is in all these great titles that we find here in John chapter 1. Our series is entitled, We Have Found the One. John the Baptist pointed his two disciples to Jesus as the Lamb of God. And he was saying, this is the one. Andrew brought his brother to Jesus and said, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ. He was telling his brother, this is the one. Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus and he told him, we have found the one, the one Moses wrote about in the law. The one about whom the prophets also wrote. We found the one. 
Do you believe that Jesus is the one and there is no other? Do you have a testimony ready to share about what Jesus means to you? And who would you like to bring to Jesus? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the one. Please help us to put aside every other distraction in order to follow you. Give us our own personal testimony that we might point others to you. Invite them to come and see. To come and see that you are indeed the one. Amen.